Lord, we come to you now asking that you would accomplish in us what you desire through your word. Lord, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, confront us where we need to be confronted, and Lord, mold and shape us so that we can become more and more like your son. And we ask, Lord, that our hearts would be humble and teachable and that uh, you would be glorified, Lord, by the way in which we partner together even now in the ministry of the word here. Um, have your freedom with us, Lord. For your glory we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, I may not look like it much today, but when I was in high school, I was very much an athlete. And um, one of the things that I enjoyed doing, um, this is especially when I was uh, in England, uh, was track and field. And in particular, um, one of the things I was involved in was the decathlon. And if you don't know what the decathlon it is, it's basically uh, 10 uh, track and field events that are kind of put together and you compete in all of them and you get certain points for certain levels uh, and times and heights and distances and all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a competition that involves the javelin, the discus, the shot put, the long jump, the high jump, um, the pole vault typically, but at our age, we didn't do the pole vault, so they did the, uh, the, the triple jump instead. Uh, the 100-meter dash, the 110-meter hurdles, the 400 meters, and the 1,500 meters. Are you tired yet? And it's usually done over kind of the course of a day. You are competing in all these different things. And I loved, in particular, competing in the field sports. I know with my frame, I was very skinny. Um, but in particular, I enjoyed the javelin. Uh, the long jump and the high jump. I would spend a lot of time during my lunch hours going to the gym and practicing my Frosbury flop. Um, if you don't know what that is, you can look it up. But um, it, was, it was a fun time. I really enjoyed it. But apart from the hurdles, I loathe the track events, especially the 1,500 meters. You guys with me? Are you tracking with me? You, you see where, how I, where I went with that, right? Now, I didn't mind the running so much, but it was the pain that I would experience. It's that runner's cramp. We called it the stitch that you had to somehow run through. I just never wanted to get there. But, you know, if you know what I'm talking about, you get this cramp in your side, and it's like, oh, how do I go on here? And, and especially with these long races, it was difficult. But add to that the exhaustion, the pain, and the agony, it was excruciating. I would rather jump over a bar or throw a sharp-pointed weapon across the field uh, filled with people than run in the 1,500 meters. Well, the Apostle Paul loves to use motifs or illustrations to teach biblical truth. Last week, the motif was accounting, talking about the gains and the losses and reckoning something or counting something as lost. That's all accounting terminology. In our passage today, the motif that he uses is the running of the race. And his goal is to move his readers, the Philippian church, and of course, we who are gathered here, to pursue maturity in Christ as we run the race. He began by saying, verse 12, I haven't obtained or reached perfection. That word perfection, however, is the same word that is used in verse 15, that those of us who are mature think this way. 
the emphasis here then is saying, I haven't, I haven't arrived, I haven't reached maturity, but those who are pursuing maturity should think this way. And so he's calling all of us to think with the mind of Christ and so be mature as we run life's race. So here's the proposition. Paul is our coach, is going to give us four instructions that will help us run the race of life as mature citizens of heaven. So friends, let's begin here by thinking about this first one. I'm calling it mature citizens press on. And notice what we have here in verse 12. Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What is the this that Paul is talking about? Well, he's referring back to what he has just been saying in verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, being, uh, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This was his aim. This was his goal. This is the this he's talking about. Now, in there, you also have this, this kind of uh, explanation of, of suffering, right? To share in his suffering. And of course, that's not something that we love or we enjoy, but we know living in this sin-cursed world, it will be inevitable. In fact, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, if you have your Bibles, you can flip back there and you can see what it says. Paul says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And Paul is saying, I haven't finished the race yet, but I'm running in the race. So Paul is saying, I haven't reached my goal. I haven't obtained the prize, but I am in hot pursuit of it. He's saying, I want to know him. I want to know his power. I want to, to partner with him in his sufferings. I want to attain this resurrection. That is my pursuit. That is my passion. That is my goal. But I'm not there yet. So Paul says, I press on. I'm going to be persistent. I'm going to run and persevere in this race. The 30th United States president, Calvin Coolidge, says this. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan press on has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. Now, he overstates the case, certainly, but he is onto something, isn't he? See, friends, pressing on has a vital place in the Christian life. It means that we know that there is a race to be run. There's a race that God has called you to. There's a race to be run. And it, it also means that we are running toward a finish line. And in that race, we're called to work hard and to expend effort. We're called to lay aside or to disentangle ourselves from anything that will hinder us in running that race. And so there's no place for coasting in the Christian life. We press on because of who Christ has made us. I want you to notice in verse 12 the wonderful and motivating truth 
that Paul reveals right at the end of it. This is what he says. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Let that settle a little bit. Don't just put that in theological category. Think of it personally. Jesus Christ has made me his own. He's made us his own. He has done it. He decided to make us his own. He has given me the place on Team Jesus. He is the one sponsoring my participation. Back in Philippians 1.6, Paul encourages the Philippian church with these words, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. We belong to Jesus He is at work in us until we stand before him in glory. And he began that good work and made us his own. And and while we are in that process, he has given us the mind of Christ, which was also in Christ Jesus. Friends, have you ever heard anyone seek to encourage someone else by these words? Be true to yourself. You might have used it. It might have been said to you. And of course, we rightly recoil at such counsel as it's really the opposite of what Scripture teaches. But I I think it's important here for us to say this. In our present context, we need to be true to our new self. See, Christ has made us something new. He's called us to a race that is a unique Christian spiritual race. Race. It's not everyone else's race. It's the race that we have been called to because we are Christ's. So we belong to him. He's made us his own. And so with the fuel behind us of this new relationship, we, we enter into this race and we press on to make the fulfillment of Christ's work in us our own. See, we belong to Jesus, and he calls us to run in the race. The question here is this, are you running? Are you running in the right direction? Are you making progress? Are you making progress in knowing Christ and sharing in his sufferings? Friends, mature citizens of heaven, press on to run the race. That's the first truth that he gives us here as we seek to run in this race. Secondly, I want you to notice that mature citizens keep going. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself uh, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I haven't made it my own yet. I'm still running in the race. I haven't reached that goal. I'm still in pursuit of knowing Christ, but I haven't ultimately achieved gaining him. And the race continues, and the race is long. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon, and it involves all sorts of different kinds of obstacles and journeys and uphills and downhills. You know, when you're younger, 
you know, the downhills aren't so bad. When you're older, the downhills hurt more. This is all part of this, this race that we're called to. And our bodies feel it. Our hearts feel it. Our emotions feel it. The struggle of this life is real. And we, in a sense, get runner's cramp many times, and we have to fight through it with endurance. So what do we do? And Paul says, there's one thing I do, but it has two parts. <laughs> do you love that? This one thing I do. And he gives you now two answers. But there are two answers that are really two sides of the same coin, so to speak. They're happening at the same time. First of all, he says, I forget what lies behind. What does he mean here? I know kind of casual Christianity talks about, well, you know, Paul says, forgetting what, what is behind. Others, just forget the past. Just forget about what those people did. That's not what Paul is meaning here. He isn't saying the past is unimportant. Or that we can't be encouraged by the past, because I think we can look back in the past and we can see think, you know, how God has been at work. But he is saying that we must not be consumed by the past because our running, the race, does not depend on our past performance. So I want you to think of, this, uh, think of it in two ways. Think of it, uh, this, this idea of forgetting what lies behind, first of all, as our past failures or bad experiences, that, that moral failure that I had, that season of apathy, that failed marriage, that foolish debt, that harsh and abusive childhood, that church discipline. Maybe it's all of the above. I don't know. But sometimes that's the way it is with us, and we can be so consumed by what has happened in the past that we, we just feel like we can't run. And if we dwell on the failure or the bad experiences of the past, things that have happened to us, rather than rest in God's wonderful, loving sovereignty and his forgiveness, we can begin to be weighed down by regret, by discouragement, by insecurity, by, by having a lack of power. You might say things like this in our heart. How can I run this race effectively with such a track record? Who will listen to me when I have sinned in such a vile way? And what will people think of me with such a past and such a reputation? But I want you to remember something. Paul has just revealed to the Philippian church something about his past. And one of the things he says is this, verse 6, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. And if you remember, as Paul came on the scene, many of those who were Christians were rejecting him because what? He's the murderer. He's the persecutor. How come you're bringing him into the church here in Jerusalem? And it took Barnabas, the encourager, to help the church realize that God had been at work in Paul and was going to greatly use him. And so we must be reminded that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's Ephesians 2, verse 10. But Ephesians 2, verse 10 isn't a standalone verse. 
It's the verse at the end of an explanation of how vile and sinful and how caught up with this world we once were. But verse 4 says, but God made us alive in him, that is Christ. See, he changes us. And when he changes us, he ushers us into this race. And our past failures and our traumatic experiences are not strong enough to remove or undo Christ's workmanship in us. You've got to believe that, friends. Yes, you failed. Yes, that happened to you. But Christ makes you new. And now you're running in this new race. And he wants you to press on. He wants you to keep going. But not only our past failures or bad experiences, but also our past achievements. Because oftentimes we can look back at our past achievements in the Christian life and say, I've done enough, right? I went on mission trips. I've taken gospel stands against the world. I've made numerous professions of faith. I've seen evangelistic fruit. I've served faithfully in ministry in the church. Our Christian resume might be outstanding. Might be impressive. And certainly these things might teach us some things about the sovereignty of God and his ability and power to work through frail people like us. But friends, Paul is saying, don't look back on your failure or your accomplishment because he's already given us a laundry list of what he has done, his pedigree and his performance that he says is rubbish. That is no basis for my standing with the Lord. We keep going and we keep resting on and, and, and uh, if, if, without, sorry, without um without resting and reliving our past accomplishments, without uh, being consumed with regret over our past failures. Why? Because we know that it is Christ Jesus who has made us his own. And so we are driven by that reality. We press on. We keep on going. So it's not only just the, the looking back that's an issue, but now he says, I want you to strain forward for what lies ahead. Our muscles are aching. Our heart is pumping. Our lungs are exhausted from the heavy breathing. And we strain forward for Christ. The picture here of straining forward is what happens in a race when those athletes get to the end of the race and they're sticking every part of their body out and their neck out. Some even are diving across the line. That's straining forward. I want to get to the finish line. That's the picture. That's the metaphor. Our eager, ongoing pursuit to know Christ and his sufferings. Friends, is that you? Are you striving? Are you straining ahead? Are you, are you wanting to pursue Christ? Are you in hot pursuit of him? Paul is saying trying to coast and live comfortably in the Christian life is not an option. There will be pain in running the race. The run is cramp will hit us in different ways. How does it show up in our lives? 
Here are some thoughts. Because we have to run. We have to, we have to endure. We have to keep focus. So what will we say, for example, when someone challenges us about our faith? Here we are running in the spiritual race, and someone comes along and they say, so you actually believe that nonsense? Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to stop running? Are you going to allow it to kind of hinder you? What about, you know, are we willing to jump in and serve when there's a need that has been made known? We're running in the race and we're made, you know, this need is, is presented to us. Are we going to stop? Are we going to be a, be a part of that? We, we, we should be. We should consider that. Will we give even when it's sacrificial? Will we press on and press through in this race? See, pain comes at us in the journey that we're on. It will. But God calls us to press through it. Friends, we have been in the race a while, and we really don't want to drop out. We want to take a rest is what we're saying. But Paul says, no, 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 keep running, keep exerting strenuous effort, keep running the race, keep chasing after the prize. You see, one of the signs of maturity in the Christian life is our ability in those times of adversity to keep pressing on. So we're called to press on in the race, and when we encounter difficulty, suffering, and trials, or obstacles, we keep going, we keep pressing on. You've probably seen some of those YouTube videos where there's a, there's a guy who's running in the race, and he may be way out ahead, and he just takes a moment to look over his shoulder. And at that moment in time, he loses his footing, he falls over, flat on his face, and other people come and get across the line before him. He didn't keep his eyes on the prize. He was distracted long enough to trip up. Now, notice verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Well, what is this maturity? Again, as I explained earlier, this is the same word that is used at the beginning in verse 12, where Paul says, I am not already perfect. And here he's saying, you know, those of us who are mature. So he's saying that there are some of you that are mature and some of you that aren't mature. It means that we're not children. It means that we're not inexperienced in spiritual exercises and abilities and warfare. We've been through it a while. It means that our faculties of discernment have grown up. It means that we are pursuing spiritual aims. These are things that become now part of our nature because we are growing up in the faith, so to speak. We all want to be mature. That's our goal is to grow to be complete in Christ. Same word. So Paul is appealing for the, for the Philippian church not to be thinking like spiritual children, but as spiritually grown adults. Let me show you that. There's a number of places we could go, but 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12. Of course, this is a passage talking about spiritual gifts and the abuses of it in particular in chapter 14. But here's what he says, and I want you to notice how he uses this word. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. 
the idea there would be what? Immature. Be infants in evil. In other words, be, this is not your normal experience. But in your thinking, be what? Mature. Right? So in your thinking, be adults. In your running the race, be adults. Be mature. Be mature citizens and not only press on, but mature citizens that are keeping going. So maturity realizes that I'm not there yet and I have not arrived, but I am still pressing on toward the prize. So what do we do? What do we do when things, you know, come up that get in the way of running the race? We don't stop. We keep running. We keep going. We run for the prize. And when we encounter obstacles, we keep running. When we are reminded of the ugliness of the past, we don't stop. It doesn't slow us down. We keep running. When we're tempted to settle in and be comfortable because of our past accomplishments, we keep running because we know that our past accomplishments don't give us any spiritual standing with God. So what gives us standing with God? Well, what gives us standing with God is what Christ has done for us in dying on the cross. It's that Jesus Christ has made us his own. It's that our righteousness has not come from our confidence in the flesh, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So mature citizens of heaven not only press on, they continue to press on, they keep going, and maturity presses toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what is this upward call? Some have suggested that what Paul is referring to is that when a a runner ran a race and he won that race, that he would come and stand before those who were the overseers of the games and they would be there to, to give a wreath, a prize. And certainly Paul does use that kind of analogy even in other places in Scripture, but that's not what Paul is really thinking about here. His desire has already been stated. His desire is to gain Christ, is to attain the resurrection. Let me just walk you through a few verses of Scripture where we find that the same ideas being talked about here. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. See, this is a heavenly calling. This upward calling is a heavenly calling. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. His own kingdom and glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, to this he calls you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Obtain. You've, you've reached, you're possessing now this thing. 1 Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. These are wonderful truths, friends. See, the end point of all our quest, all our pressing on, all our persistence is our glory that is in Christ. It's not 
just heaven, although heaven's going to be a wonderful place. But it's who will be in heaven, and I'm not talking about grandma. See, when, when Paul says in Romans 8.30, a passage we know very well, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. We see the progression of, of, of this upward call. It's a call to be in his very presence and to receive him as that prize. See, it is the end of our running. We press on. We press on to the finish line. And when we reach the finish line, yes, the goal is to cross the finish line, but it's what's behind the finish line that is our ultimate goal. And that is Christ himself. See, for some of us, the goal is heaven. But for the Christian, the goal is Christ. So mature citizens press on. They keep going. Third, mature citizens imitate others. So when you're in the race of life, you need to, to be looking up for strength in your motivation. But Paul also knows the impact and the power of others who can be examples and mentors for us as we run the race. You probably, right now, if I'm talking about mentors or examples to you, there's probably people that are coming to mind who had such an impact in you that in, as you run the race, you're thinking about them. You're thinking about how would they do it? What would they say? What encouragements would they give? See, as we're running, Paul tells us to look for experienced and worthy pace setters that we can follow. Right? Verse 11, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now certainly Paul begins by using himself as an example. He's not saying, hey look, I'm perfect, but he, as I have often said, his weather vane is pointed in the right direction. And he is one you can count on to be setting an example. He's called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and he is modeling what Christ-likeness looks like. Now, here's the thing. Paul is not on the sidelines of the track shouting at us what to do. He's actually running in the race as he's writing this. And he's ahead of the Philippians, and he's saying, look, look at my example. But if you notice, already in the book of Philippians, he says, keep your eyes on those. Uh, on, on those. In other words, other people who are, are there for you to look at as being your example. And he's talked about that, about Timothy, who who had this wonderful concern and the interests of others. And Epaphroditus that we looked at uh, last time, who was willing to work hard for the gospel. And we could, we could branch out of this and just say there are people that you know that are worthy of being modeled and looking to as examples. This is all part of what it is to be mature because you're going to get, you might say, a, an example of what the pace of this race should look like by those who are going before you. So Paul is saying, look to me, look to them as examples you can follow. He says, find them, 
imitate them. And he's saying the same thing to us. Allow their example to teach you and motivate you to keep pressing on for the prize. So I think it's worth us asking the question, a personal question, and that is this. This is you asking the question, am I a model like that? Would I be someone that comes into someone's mind as a person to look like, as a, look at as an example of someone I should follow in the race? Now, that question is not to be answered with pride, but that question should be answered with a goal in mind that that should be one of the things that we are actually striving for in the race, that we want to be that person who is calling people to say, hey, this way. I know how this curve goes. I know the direction. I know, I know the hill's coming up. Let me teach you how to run up this hill. I've run up these hills many times. See, are you the kind of person that people are seeing that they can follow? Be that kind of person. Have that as your goal. Friends, the answer to that question should help us to think about how we are running the race. So Paul says, keep an eye on them. Imitate their example as you run. But here's the, here's the problem. Not all pace setters will be good examples. Not all pace setters are worthy of your attention. In fact, Paul says that some will be enemies. They'll be imposters. So we are to avoid them. So this is letter A, avoid the enemies of the cross. And I think this is pretty astounding, right? He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's a staggering statement, isn't it? It's not some. This is many. Many who profess to be followers of Christ and profess to be running in the race are actually imposters. They're enemies of the cross. And sometimes as we you know, look for people to follow, we come with wrong mindsets about how we identify this person that should be the, the one that we're looking after. For example, just a couple of examples. Here's a man who's a Christian who's also made a lot of money in business. I think I'll follow him. Well, are you following him because of his Christ-likeness or are you following him because of his business acumen? Or here's a strong woman who is respected in her workplace, and she may very well be. But is that strength as a woman, is that respect a secular respect? Or is there actually a godliness there that is worth following? So we've got to be discerning that we're looking for people who are genuinely running the race for the glory of God. Friends, don't allow the measurements of the world to undermine your understanding of what godly citizens of heaven look like. And then Paul warns us of the emptiness of their example. Just think about these, these statements that he makes. Their God is their belly. In other words, they look to satisfy their own appetites. They have their own desires that really are their focus. It could be food. It could be comfort. It could be experiences. It could be uh, their, uh, their popularity. Secondly, their God is, they glory in their shame. They're, they're not glorying in Jesus Christ. They're glorying sometimes at the freedom they have in Christ to do this one thing, which may actually be a sinful thing, but they're glorying in what is shameful. They set their minds 
on earthly things. They're, they're not thinking about hev- the heavenly prize, but upon earthly pursuits and earthly honors. Paul's saying, from the world's perspective, these are people who are named as Christians, but they really fit in with the world. They're the kind of Christian the world likes. Friendly, comfortable, pliable, tolerant. But their end is destruction. So as you're running your race, right, you're forgetting the things that are behind you, you're straining forward to reach the prize, be careful who those examples are that you're going to latch yourself onto. Because some are not heading down the, po- the path toward Christ's likeness. They're heading down a different path. And it may be hard to discern. And so he says, and he gives some clarity here in the next few verses, to follow now citizens of heaven. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. Rather than being earthly minded, we are heavenly minded. We view the world from a heavenly mindset. We think about the place that God has has given us to, to live our lives as citizens of heaven. And from it, we wait, await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul describes what a healthy, mature citizen of heaven here looks like. They're waiting for the return of their Savior, Jesus Christ. They're awaiting the transformation of their lowly bodies. They know that their bodies are screaming at them to be satisfied with fleshly things. They understand that. But as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians, they beat their bodies into submission because they don't want to be disqualified. So Paul is saying here, follow these men, follow these women. Keep your eyes on them. Get in the rhythm and the pace that these godly examples have in their lives. How do they handle trials? How do they handle parenting? How do they handle, you know, work situations? How do they handle the various things that come along? They can give you counsel and direction as you're running the race. Mature citizens imitate others. In particular, they imitate those who are godly pace setters that are running before them. Here's the fourth thing. Mature citizens stand firm. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown. Don't you love those words? I mean, you see Paul's affection for this church, don't you? This is, these are motivations that drive him even to pick up a pen and to write this letter. But he's calling them to stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You say, well, is standing firm, is that really part of the metaphor of running the race? And the answer is no. It's actually a military term that... Uh, we have been familiar with, as we've looked at this Philippian church and this letter to Philippi, the Roman soldiers, as you know, would stand uh, with shield next to shield, next to shield, and it would call it a shield wall. They would partner together. They'd be standing side by side so that they could be this impenetrable wall, and they would stand firm. They would put their feet hard in the ground so that when the enemy came running down the hill, that wall would not break. Now, this is the expression that Paul uses back in 127. 
Look back there if you would. Because Paul has really ultimately been talking about this the whole time. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What Paul has been after in this letter is this very thing, that they would stand united together standing together for the faith of the gospel. And that requires having the mind of Christ. It requires discipline to run the race for the prize. It requires God's people seeking to live life according to his game plan. And we get a little sense of that when they're, they're like you know, surprised, so to speak, about the fact that Paul is in prison and how come he's in prison. And Paul responds that it's in my imprisonment that the advancement of the gospel is going to take place. Because Paul had a gospel game plan in mind. It was a gospel race plan, so to speak, in mind. So shifting back the metaphors from the military back to running the race, we need to look and anticipate how we run the race. It's good to run in the race. And if you're in the race, that's a good thing. But it's good to keep running in the race because obstacles will come up, trials will hit you, but you keep on running. It's good to follow others who are good examples as you are running in the race, how to run the race, the many stages that you'll go through and the struggles that you'll face. Yet we're all called to face each of those situations with a similar gospel game plan to stand together, to stand firm, to follow this gospel game plan. So we must be good stewards of this game plan. But what is this game plan? Well, I, I just kind of put two things that really flow out of this text and this, this image of running the race. Number one, finishing the race, not winning the race. Now, see, this is, this is where the... The, this metaphor kind of breaks down because you usually think of, of running the race as running to win. But the Christian race is running to get over the line. And that changes your attitude. I mean, if you and I signed up for the Boston Marathon, we, number one, we might be happy just to get in the race. And we would be thrilled to finish the race. And many of us might just be happy to be on the sidelines watching the race, right? But see, finishing the race and not winning the race, that means staying on the path that God has, which is where the race is being run. It means running with endurance. It means having your eyes fixed on the prize. It means looking out for distractions. It means staying hydrated with spiritual resources. It means keeping a steady pace, not running too fast, not running too slow, but allowing the gospel to dictate your pursuit. Finishing the race, not winning the race. Secondly, getting every believer across the finish line. And friends, this fits right into this mind of Christ teaching that Paul has given them in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And that is you're putting 
others before yourself. You're not neglecting yourself, but you're putting others before yourself. You're thinking of others. So we're all partnering together so that we can all gain the prize. So we're all running toward the finish line. That's, that's the goal here. But some of us have stumbled and will need to be nursed back to health. Others will get distracted, weary, or simply need to rest. Many will get cramps of various kinds, blisters, and need to stop for some drink. But the mind of Christ in us won't let us abandon them. That's what it means to partner together in gospel ministry. See, Christianity is not just to be about me and Christ. It's to be about us in the pursuit of Christ. We run the race together. We run the race in such a way that we're drawing people with us. We're helping people to get across the finish line. That's why we have a parenting conference. That's why we had a purity conference. That's why we spend time together in home groups. That's why we fellowship together one-on-one. Why? Because we want to encourage one another to keep running and to get across that finish line. To be faithful and to see it to the end. You may have heard about the father and son duo known as Tim, uh, Team Hoyt. They started running together back in the 1970s. Together they ran over 200 marathons, including 31 Boston marathons. But what's unusual about this running team is that the son, Rick, had a difficult birth that left him with cerebral palsy. So Dick, the father, runs and pushes his son, Rick, in a specially built wheelchair. Rick, the son, can't speak, and so he was able to communicate to his father via some computer gizmo back in the 70s. I don't know what they had back then, but he was able to do that. And here's what he said. He said, Dad, when I run, it feels like my disability disappears. After hearing that, his father determined that he would commit to running more with his son. A few years back, they even took on the Ironman Challenge in Hawaii, which involved not only running, but biking and swimming. Not only did Dick push his son uh, in a wheelchair, but they had a specially made bike where his son could sit in front of him in a seat while he pedaled them along the way. And Dick swam with a rope tied around his waist and pulled his son in a dinghy. See, their example gives us a wonderful picture of what it means to partner in the Christian race. Some of us are strong. Some of us are seasoned. Some of us are mature. Others are pursuing that, but they struggle. They find themselves flat on their faces at times, out of breath, exhausted, wondering if they can get up. But we love one another enough that we are willing to help each other run the race with endurance and to make it across the finish line. And because we're citizens of heaven, we know that we belong to Christ. He owns us. And so we partner together to press on together, encouraging, strengthening helping one another to cross the finish line. 
And at that very moment, we will all rid ourselves of the overwhelming sinful struggles that weigh us down so much. (laughs) And our suffering and struggling bodies will be transformed into glorious bodies. But the most important thing of all is that once we cross the finish line, we will have our prized possession, and that is Christ himself. So run to gain the prize which is Christ, but run with your spiritual family to help them on their journey and do it together. Lord, help us today to be made aware, Lord, first of all, of this race that you've called us to. We have not arrived yet, just like Paul would say. So we keep running. We don't run in an aimless way. We run to reach the prize. We run toward the finish line. We ultimately run, Lord, because we want to be with you. You are our gain. You are our treasure. It's because of you that we have this new life and that we can even run this race. And you have made us your own. And so, Lord, what you have done in making us your own, now, Lord, give us the fuel, the passion, and the desire to make our own, our own pursuit of you as we run this race together. And Lord, may it not just be us running with blinders on thinking only of ourselves, but may it be a run where we're looking around at our fellow racers, encouraging and helping and strengthening and mobilizing and teaching and or being that one another, Lord, to all those who are running so that we can all get across that finish line in a way that glorifies you. Help us, Lord, to press on, to keep on going, chasing after the prize of Christ. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.